0: I hope you will join me in Mark chapter 16, and we come to find a a mysterious phenomenon that when we open the Bible together, it begins to open us, and when we begin to expose what's in it, it begins to expose what is in us, and so we were hopefully going to pick up in Mark chapter 16 where we've left off, I'll recap a little bit. Up to this point, we've been for the last few months, starting in January, um, running through the book of Mark, trying to keep pace with the way that Mark tells his story. If you're kind of a scatterbrained ADHD, um, I have those kinds of tendencies, well, you'll love Mark because before you've even kind of started to process the story he just told you about Jesus, he's on to the next story, and he tells us at a breathtaking pace the person and work of Jesus for the first two-thirds of the book, but for the last third, he slows down and covers the last week of Jesus' life in detail, in painful detail, up to last week, where we see the climax of the entire book, Jesus dying on the cross. He paints a picture of the meaning of Jesus' death, not, not simply telling us a sensational story about violence or the bloodiness or the pain that was inflicted on Jesus. In fact, he kind of glosses over all of those details, but instead, he wants us to see the substance of Jesus' death. The substitutionary nature of Jesus' death, as we would call it. So he tells us in a repetitive sense, there was a man named Barabbas who was a criminal who was sentenced to die, and the people who wanted Jesus crucified set him free so that Jesus literally died in the criminal's place. So that when he cries out to God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Repeating the words of the 22nd Psalm, The way that he dies has some substance to it that even the pagan Roman soldier, the centurion who presided over his death, is the first human being to look at Jesus and not just see him as a chosen Messiah, but as the Son of God. And the substance of his death is so compelling that even the people who killed him see Jesus for who he truly is. And now we get to the end of the story. The end of the story, I say obviously meaning the beginning of a whole other story, but beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, we'll read the first eight verses after Jesus has been placed in the tomb. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Him, that is, Jesus And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I want you to see the general character with which Mark has been telling this story is picked up right here in its final chapter and the way i want to illustrate that for you to show you the point that mark means to make even in the most important most influential most climactic moment of the story a theme seems to emerge so here's the way I want to illustrate that for you. I want to invite you to do something. If you look around you, there is a, a blank little piece of paper. You'll see a white sheet of paper. I want you to grab it and grab a pen or a pencil. If you don't have a pencil, there should be some, uh, lots of pins stacked up. And uh, if there aren't enough, kind of like wave your hand and someone will toss you one or you can take turns using it. So I want you to take and on this piece of paper, this little piece of paper. Um, there, if you space it out right here on the front or in the back, you can, you can kind of plan this out. I don't know what level of artistry you bring to the table. I want you, as best you can, from memory, don't cheat, from memory, sketch out the penny. So right now, begin to sketch out the penny. See if you can sketch the front and the back. Do not cheat. Don't, don't dig into your pocket for a penny. This is the most common, cheapest, most accessible piece of currency that we have so start to sketch it all right in your head who's there you know who's who's the who's the face that you see um i mean i'll give you the hint there's a there is a face on the penny and this person is facing one direction or the other there are some words maybe on the front or the back of this penny i'll wait a moment before everyone starts to kind of look up got it got in your head you take longer i promise you you won't remember any better all right so let's start who who's on the penny lincoln that's a winner right what's on the back the memorial all right so let's see how you did this is the penny this is the most accessible piece of american currency that exists all right You see his face? Did you get him facing the right way? Did you get the date? Liberty? In God we trust across the front? One cent, United States of America. So did anybody nail it? Anybody like get the major details? Anybody just absolutely kill it? Okay? This guy knows his pennies. This guy, he's a coin collector, apparently. Anyone else? Like one person. Maybe, maybe, I kind of, it was. Right, so... So I, I want you to see this. This is literally the most accessible piece of American currency. The average times that a human being who lives in America will touch and handle and use this little piece of accessible currency would blow your mind. Now, arguably, it's becoming less and less the case. In fact, it's actually cost the American Mint uh, more money to create the penny uh, than it costs than it's actually worth. Uh, there is, it's, it's more valuable. The, the amount of metal and manufacturing that goes into it is more than a cent. Um, so uh, bury them, I guess. Save them; they're, they're worth more than a cent. You could put your dollar in that, right? So, so this is the American penny. Thousands of times in your life, you will thousands, thousands of times in your life, you will see it. And notice, almost none of us remember it with striking detail. It's the most common; like anybody can find a penny. It's so common that you would you would find one just laying around. And at this point, not only is it more expensive to make the penny than it's actually worked, there's probably, you've actually looked at a penny at some point in your life and walked past it. Am I right? Should I pick it up? Nah, it's all dirty. It's only a penny. And it's the most common thing. And yet, despite how common it is, despite how well known the penny is, the details of it are blurry. Are they not? In fact, unless you had studied it, unless, unless you had put a great deal of effort into remembering it, you wouldn't even recognize the details of it. And Mark, for the course of the entirety of this book, has been telling us something about Jesus that I think the penny teaches us. Is that sometimes the people who are the closest to Jesus, the people who think they get it, are in fact the ones who miss out on Him entirely. For every chapter leading up to the chapter 16, the last chapter in the Gospel of Mark, Mark regularly references some things so that you and I would see very clearly who Jesus is. Remember, he loves to quote Isaiah. He loves to speak of Jesus in the ways in which that the prophet Isaiah predicted Jesus would act, the, the chosen Son of God, the Messiah, would look. And so he regularly quotes Isaiah. So the the theme of this new creation, this new exodus, this new deliverance that Jesus himself would bring about by the power and will of God comes right out of the predictions of Isaiah. And he keeps saying that over and over and over again. But the people, the scholars, the experts of the book of Isaiah, namely the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, are the ones who miss out on him. He regularly even quotes the prophet Daniel. He loves to quote Daniel chapter 7 where Jesus regularly makes reference to himself as the judging son of man who's returning to restore God's sovereign rule. He also loves to quote Psalm 110, right? That Jesus is at the right hand. That that all these prophecies, all these predictions about who Jesus is, all the things that the Old Testament tell us that ought to make the nature of Jesus obvious to us are completely missed by the people who were the closest to him. And all the ways in which people should have seen Jesus and go, aha, of course, this is the one. Of course he is the suffering servant. Of course he is the judge, the son of man. Of course he is the one who takes our place. Of course he is the lamb of God. Of course he is these things. But the people who were closest to him completely missed it. And the question that Mark tells us the question mind you that none of the other gospel writers and their account of the easter sunday tell us did you catch it did you catch the kind of the question that this entire chapter hinges on these women go to the tomb and in verse three they say to one another who will roll away the stone who will roll away the stone?" Over and over and over again, Jesus makes it very clear in chapter 8. Mark tells us that Jesus came and he said, hey, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be turned over. They're going to kill him, but on the third day he's going to rise again. Chapter 9. He says again, hey, by the way, they're going to kill me. This is what's going to happen. And he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And his, remember, his, his disciples were astounded at his courage that he knew he was facing doom in Jerusalem. Yet he set his sight resolutely on going there anyway. But because he said, look, the Son of Man, I'm going to be handed over. But in, on the third day, he's, I'm going to rise again. Chapter 10, the exact same thing. Son of Man, handed over, will die, third day, rise again. Over and over and over again. And Mark, you know how he tells the story with very few details, correct? And so if he tells you that it happened three times, it probably happened multiple times. And over and over and over again, he's meant to kind of set the tone for our expectation of Jesus. Jesus is going to die three days, rise again. Jesus is going to die three days, rise again. Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to die. Make sure you pray. Make sure you stay right with me. And they go, we'll we'll die for you, Jesus. I promise you we'll do exactly like you predict. And what happens? They They abandon him. They betray him. They hide. And in the moment where they could stand beside him, they choose to abandon him and run. And Mark wants us to have this echoing in the back of our heads. I told you, I t- this is how I told you it was going to happen. This is how Isaiah said it was going to happen. This is how the prophet Daniel said it was going to happen. This is how Genesis said this was going to happen. This is how the new Exodus will look. And this is how the Psalm 110 tells us that it will look. Every single time, Mark wants us to think, we know what's going to happen when the third day comes. There's going to be this readiness and anticipation. And then what do we find them asking when they get there? Man. Who's going to roll away the stone? Who's going to roll it away? I want you to catch the loaded nature of this question. Remember, this isn't in Luke, Matthew, or John. Mark, like more than anyone else, I think we see an encourager to his church. He was a part of a church that was in Rome, and he was... Full of, it was full of Greek-speaking Romans, and at that time, the, the persecution that was overtaking the first century church was, was leading its way to a climax that ends in some of the worst and darkest days for the church that the history of the church has ever seen. And leading up to it, Mark wants the people who are at this point filled with fear, at this point filled with confusion, to be encouraged by the fact that even the people who were closest with Jesus had doubts, had fears, had confusion. And the way he tells us this is the way the women ask this question. Hey, who's going to open the tomb for us? I don't know if you caught that. Do you you have any friends that are especially stout? They're your friends, and like when you need to move something, they become your best friends. right? I'm not going to make any eye contact with anyone in this room, because that's almost all of you at some point, probably in the time that I've known you right they're like at that point when they it's not just that they're big and strong but they're tall that's even that's even better right and all of a sudden they become your best friends because in that moment they serve a great purpose am i right and it would be it would be as if like if we were sitting in a room and some of my big tall strong handsome and smart <laughs> friends love you guys especially So we're sitting in a room, and there's this heavy stuff. Maybe my stuff is in a moving van. And I would go, who's going to help me unload this heavy stuff out of the moving van? Who will help me? Oh boy, I wish I had some strong friends. You get it now? You get the question? As if to say, on the way to the place where they saw Jesus had been buried. On the way there, these women go, wouldn't it be cool if we had, I don't know, 11, maybe 12 dudes? Like, wouldn't it be cool if we knew, if we happened to know, I mean, do you catch the tone here? Do you catch the tone that Mark's setting? Like, wouldn't it be great if I knew, I don't know, 11 or 12 guys that might be able to move this stone? Indeed, Mary, wouldn't that be great? Indeed, Mary, I, I agree. That would be awesome. You get it? On the third day, I'll rise again. On the third day, I'm coming back. On the third day, this is not over. On the third day, that's not the last word to be spoken. And yet in this moment, Mark poses a question said by the women. Where's everybody? And the people who ought to have known better. (laughs) the people who ought to have made lots of mental notes that when jesus is going to die it's not the end are nowhere to be found mark especially i don't know if you caught this he he really likes to throw peter under the bus The assumption is that Mark and Peter are are extremely close and the tradition of the church, the history of the church kind of bears this out, that Mark and Peter end up serving together, and so he regularly even throws Peter under the bus so much that even when the command in verse 7 for the women to go and tell the disciples, it says, tell the disciples, and Peter, right, Mark has no problem taking every opportunity to kick the disciples under the bus, especially Peter. He tells the painful details in which Peter especially promised and denied Jesus, Peter especially didn't do the thing that Jesus had set out to be done. Because in the end, the people who were the closest with Jesus didn't get it. My encouragement to you, in the same way that maybe the details of the penny have slipped your mind, so also I want to challenge and encourage you, be awake and be aware of who Jesus is, because there is something about him that's worth mentioning. The question I want to kind of pose as we walk through this text is this. Why first did God roll away the stone? Why did He roll away the stone? So the story begins about verse 2 of the previous chapter. I don't know if you caught this, but it it lists people's names with a great deal of specificity. Verse 40, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, Salome. This starts in verse 40. And then as Mark likes to do, he sandwiches together a story in which the beginning and the end of the story have similar themes, and there's kind of an interjection of something else, namely the presence of Pilate, the death of Jesus, and even the response of the centurion. It cuts this account of these women. But on both sides of the sandwich, you see their names, specifically, as if to say, to Mark's church, hey, if you wonder about the death of Jesus, which was probably in the context of Rome, the thing that was being disputed the most, he says there are witnesses, there are people, and he, lit, he, he lists them out by name. So that presumably Mark was speaking to a church and they could go, well, is, did Jesus really die? And he says, well, look, there are some people, Mary, Mary, Salome, And if that isn't enough, there's a guy by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He presided over the burial. He stuck his neck out for Jesus to have a place to be buried. He's the owner of the tomb. If you want to know about Jesus' death, ask him. And as if that isn't enough, verse 44, it says that Pilate himself was even surprised to hear about the death of Jesus. And the centurion who presided over his death, who saw Jesus as the Son of God, was summoned to him, and they all Verified that Jesus was dead. They all verified it. Stop for a moment. It says that they were astounded. Did you catch that? Pilate was astounded to hear that Jesus was already dead. I think in this you see the reason that the centurion, when looking at the death of Jesus and the way that he died, saw him as the Son of God. I don't know if you caught that. They were all expecting him to take a longer time to die. It would have been customary to hang the man on the cross and see him hang there for quite some time. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a way to kill anyone very quickly. In fact, it's the slowest, most gruesome and painful, torturous way to kill a person. So that the longer that the person can hang there alive, the longer they serve as a lesson for the Romans to teach the people. Like, this is what happens when you come against us. So it isn't a quick and easy death. It's a slow and painful death. And these people were good at it. They were good at making this death draw out. And even the centurion that confirmed to Pilate surprised Pilate with this news. Why? Here's what I think you'll see. Because Jesus wasn't killed only. He gave His life. Jesus gave His life. He gave it away. He wasn't trying to get down from that cross. He embraced the death of, that had been laid upon him, and when he did embrace that death, cried his last. Mary, Mary, Salome, Joseph of Arimathea, presumably the Centurion and all of his soldiers, Pilate, all confirmed that he's dead. Why is this important? It's probably because at this particular time that Mark is telling the story of Jesus, the people in Rome are probably questioning, well, did Jesus really die? Did he really die? Is it that he actually died? Because for them, that would, maybe that would explain how he rolled away the tomb. Now, this is for me, we'll talk about this more next week. We'll get more into it. One of the most beautiful, compelling arguments that I think for the bodily resurrection of Jesus is just that. Luke goes on to tell us that Jesus showed up and appeared to some people and walked a whole day's journey away. Now, I don't know about you, but if I work out kind of hard, if I get hit with a ball or maybe hit with something kind of solid, I'm going to cry about it for like three to four days. Anyone else? Like I'm going to be sore and regret it for a while. So a man who endured a beating for the entirety of a day, who was hung and tortured and killed all of a sudden goes, you know what, I changed my mind, I'm going to move this heavy stone, is meant to be kind of an implausible argument that Mark wants to debunk by telling us of all the people who saw that Mark actually was dead. So that leads us to the question, why did God roll away the stone? Now for most people, the quick answer is for Jesus, of course. He's dead. But the Gospel of Luke tells us at the very end of of the story, that that Jesus didn't need anyone to move over the stone. So just see this first and foremost, God didn't move over the stone for Jesus. Jesus didn't need that. You remember the story, it's one of my favorites. Jesus appears to walk in bodily form alongside two people who were incredibly devastated by watching this thing that they had put their hope in come to an end when Jesus died. And so as they're walking home on their way to Emmaus, this man comes alongside them, is walking with them. And when they get to where they're going, Luke tells us that they begin to eat and they begin to break bread and in the breaking of bread Jesus does something amazing. And Luke is very specific about his words. It says that he vanished. So the minute they recognized him in the way that he blessed and broke the bread and revealed himself to him, all of a sudden afterward he vanished. He didn't get up and walk out the door. In fact, that's one of the stories that they mean to say. He vanished. And right after that, Luke tells us again to emphasize his point. When, when they get back to where the apostles are together, hiding in the house still, Jesus what? Did Jesus knock on the door? No. He appeared. Very specific with his words. He appeared in their midst. And then he had to do his thing just like the angel did here. Hey, calm down. Peace be with you. Because when people walk through walls, it's kind of freaky. But it's meant to illustrate the point. God didn't move the stone away for Jesus. Jesus had the power, apparently, in His glorified body to both be physically present and eat and walk, at the same time do amazing things like walk through walls. Who knows, by the time that God moved over the stone, maybe Jesus had already walked out, because I think what you'll find is this. God rolled away the stone, not for Jesus' sake, but for ours. God rolled away the stone, not for Jesus, but for us. He rolled it away for us.
1: So Mary, they,
0: they pose this kind of ominous, indicting question, right? Who's going to roll away the stone? Who's going to do this for us? As if to kind of remind us, oh, the disciples probably could do this. They had enough guys, but they're hiding somewhere. And the answer to the question has already been laid out for them. God rolled it away. God rolled it away, not for Jesus. He can walk through walls at this point in this story. But for Mary, Mary, you and me to see inside this empty tomb. Mark alone records this question so that I think you and I would see, first and foremost, that the disciples, the people who knew him the best, didn't get it even just yet. And for us to see the hint that Mark gives us that we are to see inside this tomb. After all, they probably were depending on showing up at the tomb and someone else rolling it away for them. But I want you to see God rolls away the tomb for these women, not for Jesus. He rolls away this tomb for us so that we can see his victory clearly. After all, Jesus had told them something. Jesus had told them that something was going to happen. And we're meant to remember in this moment that these two women had forgotten something essential. Just like us. These two women on the way to the tomb forgot something essential for the purpose of us not forgetting that which is essential. They knew they had been told, they had been reminded. Jesus had said over and over and over again, and here's what I want to kind of pose to you. As you look at your own life, can you learn from this lesson? Is it possible that the most important truths for us about who God is are the ones that are the easiest ones to forget? In the same way that a penny is really hard to pay much attention to and recall, is it possible that so also some of the most common and easily acceptable truths about God are the ones we forget first. Have you forgotten something essential about God? As you look at your own life, is it possible that you have forgotten that we serve a God who does the impossible? I, I don't know what your week looked like. I don't know what brought you in here, but but this is one of those places where, on a regular basis. I, like these women, kind of haphazardly stumbled into something that may loosely be affiliated with Jesus, but if I was really, if I was really honest about it, I'm, I'm depending and hoping that, that I have the strength to get through it. Ever been here? Like it's got Jesus' name stamped on it, but in the end, I'm like, I, I got this. It, it, you hope God's going to do it, and maybe we'll go, well, you know, thank God for that. But in reality, you're thinking, thank me for that. I don't know how this plays out for you. It plays out for me in the level of anxiety I have. Right? Jesus commands us, don't worry. Don't, don't have anxiety about these things. I've got this taken care of. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Don't worry about it. I've got you. The lilies of the field don't have to fret about looking beautiful, and I take good care of them, right? So don't worry. And one of the things I think that we see that makes worry, and I'm going to be very specific in the way I say that, that makes worry sinful against Jesus' command is that it assumes that it's in your hands. It assumes that the worries of tomorrow are ultimately up to you. And in that moment, it is the easiest to forget the most essential things about God. He's a creator, a sustainer, a redeemer. Let the good news of this Sunday story kind of wash over you. These women serve as a foil for us to begin to see ourselves. They they go to the tomb... With a task in hand, but kind of a little bit worried about how it's going to play out. Like, okay, we're going to do the right thing, but in the end, it's going to be for nothing. In the end, the difficulty will be ours alone to bear. You see, these women forgot something essential. And Mark wants us to remember here that these women forgot something essential so that we would not. We serve a God of the impossible. Our God gives us hope. So when you look to the future, whose hands is it really in? Because I want you to see a very great and powerful truth that comes right after that. Did you catch that? They have a question about what they're going to do. It hinges the, kind of the entirety of the chapter, and they find something amazing. And this is what's powerfully good news for you and for me. Before they even asked for the solution, God had already done it before they had even presented the question, before they had the audacity to speak the question out of their own mouths, God had already provided an answer for it. He had already done it. I mean, think about this. This this question kind of hinges on the entirety of Mark's argument, doesn't it? Like Mark's been telling us from the beginning, God's going to do this. Remember what Isaiah said, he's going to deliver us. It's going to be like a new exodus, a new promised land. It's going to be amazing. You're going to pass through water, through death, but it won't stop you. You'll find your way into the promised land on the other side. Just like Daniel says, look, there's these regimes, these empires are going to rise and fall, but the Son of Man, He's going to live and stand forever. He's going to rule and reign over all things. You should expect this. You should see this coming. The answer has already been provided. And before these women even asked the question about what they ought to do, God had already done it. Man, this will mess you up. This will start to mess you up. Before we even begin to experience forgetfulness about God's character, and before we even express our concern about it, God has already provided an answer for it. Let that just kind of sit on you for a while. Because God does something amazing in this particular story. God moves the stone away, not for Jesus. He didn't need any help. He moves the stone away for you and for me. And before these people had even asked for the solution, God has already done it. Let that begin to rest or bring rest in your own mind. What are you looking for this week? Right? What are you expecting even out of the rest of today? What are you expecting out of the rest of 2016? The big question, the deep question, what do you really expect for the rest of your life? I mean, really. Really? What do you have planned? What are your deepest fears? What are your deepest anxieties? What are your deepest joys? What are your deepest expectations? What are those things? And before you even begin to contemplate that future, we find a powerful picture, don't we? God has already already done it. He already did it. Is it possible that God has done something miraculous here? God has done something already in place and is waiting for us to stumble upon it. I don't know if you caught that. These women had a job, and this is the fun part. They didn't finish the job. It says they went out and they purchased some things to anoint the body of Jesus, right? If, uh, it's not think, Don't think like an embalming like the Egyptians would have done. It's more of just a, a preservation, a sign of honor, a sign of love. And they, went, and they went to just kind of make things better, right? Because they wanted to preserve and honor the body of Jesus. And so they go and they bought some stuff, and this will blow your mind. The things they set aside to buy to, to, to anoint the body of Jesus ended up being a waste of money. Right, there's a whole other sermon in that, right? Like The things that they had set aside and invested in the future ended up being a waste of money because their, their task was an ultimate failure, was it not? They went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, to cover it with spices, to, to make the, the awful decaying process at least a bit more pleasant. And they didn't even get to fulfill their mission, did they? And the thing that they had set out to do that day was utterly hijacked by what God had already done. And just let that one kind of sink. The thing that they had set out to do was hijacked by what God had already done. And when they got to the place where they knew what they would expect, they were stunned, astonished, and found that God had already done something. Not only had he solved the problem that to open the tomb so that they could see inside it, but he had done something else that is even just as amazing. He destroyed their plans. He utterly destroyed their plans. If I could just kind of be harsh and truthful at this point. I pray this as graciously and carefully as I can over my life and yours. But there are some plans that you presently have right now that seem like they are well-intentioned and they seem like they are honorable. And I I just want to warn you and pray for the, the hastiness to come about God is on his way to destroying those plans. Like, as we speak, those things that you expect for today, for this week, God in his mercy is on his way to ruining those plans. And you think you're bringing some level of authority to the table, some level of foresight or insight into the future, and I want to warn you, God is going to rip those things to pieces. I'm telling you this for good reason. Notice what Mark didn't tell us. They didn't, Mark didn't tell us that Mary and Mary go, oh my, what will we do with the thing that we have that now has no purpose, right? Because what a silly thing to be upset about. What a silly thing to look at the empty tomb of Jesus, hear the words of the angel that he's alive and he's he's been risen, and then to look at the thing that God had done and laid out for him, prepared for them, finished on their behalf and go, oh man, this ruins what I was going to do today. This really ruins our plans. What, what are we going to do with all this, this incense? What are we going to do with all this stuff? It costs us a bunch of money. Do you get it? Have you ever heard those words kind of come out of your own mouth? In light of this incredibly good news that God has done something before you even had the bravery or audacity or knowledge to ask for it, we find ourselves going, oh man, this is awful. What a waste. Notice they didn't say that, did they? And so here's what I would push back on you, and you can push right back on me. Neither should we. When the plans that we set begin to fall apart, I want to just possibly pose something here that I think the text seems to imply. When when the plans that we have for ourselves fall apart, it's possible that God is doing something monumentally bigger than what you saw. It is possible. Now, now, now be careful with this. Don't, don't run into someone's tragedy and go something, say something crazy like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, right? I mean, there's, that's like nebulously true, but on the other hand, incredibly unloving. Don't do that, right? That's not what we do here. But what we do seem to do here is that We seem to look at the ways in which God has done something on our behalf before we even had the courage or foreknowledge to ask for it. And when we see it, these other failures start to look smaller. Notice that they didn't say it was a wasted day. And so here was what I would argue for you. Neither should you. Because before they had asked for a solution, God had already provided it. So that when it came about, they didn't stop and complain. I'm praying for some of you. This is, I, I, I know what I'm praying for. But some of you, I don't, but like, I love you. And I, I am praying. I'm, I can't wait for God to destroy some of the stuff that you're currently investing in. I can't wait for God to rip the rug out from underneath you because I, I want to warn you it's going to hurt, but there's this ever greater joy waiting on the other side. You as you as you're like clinging to this thing and God allows it to be ripped to shreds and that brings great sorrow. I want you to see God's mercy because He's probably given you something better. You don't believe me? Is that not? Didn't they not think to themselves, today we're gonna go over here, we're gonna do this thing, we're gonna put the the ceiling, you know, we're kind of kind of seal the deal. This thing that we've been doing with Jesus, we're going to kind of lay it to rest today. We're going to go and do this thing. This is the calendar for the day. And none of that happens. Everything gets ripped to shreds. But instead of seeing as a, meaning, as a, as, as a means to mourn, they see it as a means to rejoice. And they are astonished and full of awe as a result. So when the things that you and I plan for start to fall apart, may we be the people who immediately run to this chapter and go, okay, this is awful. This is painful. This hurts. This is what happens in the brokenness of the world. But it is possible that God might be doing something bigger and he might have already done it before we even asked for the solution. Because I think you'll find here, God raised Jesus from the dead and he rolled away the stone to remove the word impossible from your mind. God moved the stone, raised Jesus, and made the story of this day happen so that you and I would no longer have the word impossible as a category in our heads. The well, way I'll kind of finish it this way, can you imagine like what these women must have felt like? Can you imagine the the sense with which they walked or trudged to the tomb. For the last few years of their life, they'd invested everything into this guy. And over the last couple of days, they'd watched it all completely come crashing down. And we find something amazing. God does something and in the midst of their sorrow, on their way to finally let this one die, let this one lay to rest. And to prepare for the next stage in their life, God does something to remove the category of impossible from their mind. Because even though Jesus had predicted, even though Jesus had said that this is what was going to happen, notice that the apostles weren't there waiting and ready for Jesus to walk out of the grave. Remember what they'd forgotten. They watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They'd watch Jesus heal people. They'd watch Jesus call the weather to obey Him. They'd watch Jesus do amazing things. They'd watch demons obey Him. they they've watched Jesus do phenomenal things, and yet still in their head there was a category. There was, there was a spot in, left in their imagination that had been untapped and untouched by what Jesus had done. Namely, that when a person dies, they stay dead. There's nothing more final than death and God does something here to remove the last possible category in their head that they qualified as impossible. The second thing that Jesus accomplishes here is something that God loves to do and this is why I want to encourage you and leave you with this. In the moment where their faith was all but extinguished, in the moment where their hope was at its lowest, that is where God intervenes to reignite their faith. In the moment of their greatest doubt in what Jesus was doing and their greatest confidence that it was over. Like this, they, they're on the way to putting the finishing touches on the end of this season of their life, right? Right? In that moment where they were ready to 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 wish or to to just like give up their wishes and say, this is over, this thing that we'd put our hope and trust in is done. In that moment, God does something, and I would argue he really loves this more than anything else. In that moment, he reignites their faith. In the moment that their faith was all but lost, God evidently takes great joy in restoring people in that second. So for you in this room, can you can you relate to that? Can, can you relate to the sentiment that these woman, women must have had walking up to the grave, knowing that this was the end, preparing for the next chapter to move on? Because in that moment, that is often where God loves and finds great joy in and seems to delight in restoring the extinguished faith of His people. Matthew 20 verse, or Matthew 12 verse 20 puts this way, Jesus says that a battered reed, he will not break off." that is the one who was beaten, God will not abandon. And so in the moment where their faith was at its smallest, God did something. You see, the announcement of Jesus' resurrection is not an in and of itself, but instead it's a basis for action. Did you catch what the angel told them? Verse 7. You've seen it. He's not here. He drops another little thing. This is Mark. You kind of catch Mark's tone. Tell his disciples... He's going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him. And I love a little bit of snark in here. Just as He told you, right? Even even the angel apparently has a little bit of a, I told you so. Seriously, remember the thing that Jesus said? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Go do this. Remember He told you. And then the next thing He says, in light of that, go. Go, verse 7. Tell His disciples. Tell Peter. I love that. I don't know if you caught that. You remember Peter, right? Remember the one that Mark loves to throw on the bus? Because he's just like this serial failure. He's just like every chance he gets to, to stand up for Jesus, he just fails or he just loudly does something ignorant. Isn't that interesting? The person who seems to have a track record of missing the boat the most often, the angel seems to single out and say, make sure you tell him. You know the guy that's probably beating himself up the most? Because you know Peter's type, right? Have you met this person? I, I resonate with Peter, right? Really high, high, really low, low. Right? Like manic. Like Peter, woo! And then, oh, I'm going to kill myself. You, you met this person? That's what, this is probably what Peter's like, because he's the guy, let's do this! And he's like, I quit, I failed. So so at this particular point in the story, you've got to assume Peter's at the lowest of lows. He's hiding somewhere and thinking that failure has utterly overtaken him. And what does the angel do? The angel makes sure to give a word of encouragement to the person who probably was wearing his failure the most heavily. So that for you in this room, who are wearing failure, who are wearing the weight of sin, the weight of secret sin, would realize that there is good news. God has done something And he has provided a solution. And if you would begin to trust it, there is a word for you here. A word that this is not the end. Because of Jesus Christ, in fact, this is the beginning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the good news of this day. We thank you that this day is Continually commemorated by us. We thank you that this is not the end, but it is the beginning. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, all of the things that for us fit into the category of impossible become less and less so. God, here's what I I pray for, for us. I pray that for those in this room that may be there full of doubt and full of skepticism, and the thought that Jesus has done something to demonstrate for us that God is real, Uh, for those people that bring a great deal of skepticism and a great deal of doubt and are overwhelmed by questions, would you in this moment begin to answer those questions and demonstrate that for them, just like these women, some of the answers you've already been unfolding? If we find ourselves overwhelmed by doubt, would we sympathize deeply with these women? Would we sympathize deeply with the people not in this story, the the disciples who had maybe all but given up? And in the place of doubt, would you speak this word of good news, that the category of impossible is nothing for you? That's the place you tend to work the best and demonstrate the ability for us. Give us the gift of faith. That we would receive this pardon and receive this gift to believe in that which is impossible. That you would take the dead and bring them to life. That you would take our brokenness and make something beautiful of it. That you would redeem the lost and give sight to the blind. For the rest of us, maybe we know this good news, but maybe just like these women uh, the most foundational and fundamental tenets of our faith are the easiest to forget. And like even just a penny, they become so common that we really don't have any value for them at all. In this moment, would you restore us? In the moment where our faith is all but extinguished, would you restore our enthusiasm? Would you give us a new joy that we would see the things around us as merely the canvas with which you love to paint beautiful things? That the brokenness and what seems like the end and the failure of things is in fact the exact place that you mean to demonstrate your grace. God, restore us. Give us the gift of faith. And give it to us again and again so that we would see the beautiful story that comes to an end. We thank you for this. We thank you for this good news. And this chapter, we thank you that this is the beginning and not the end in Jesus Christ. Amen.